Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Paul Begala, one of the only people in American history who has helped elect two presidents of the United States and one of the funniest, brightest political minds in our country today. This episode is a real treat for me because growing up, I heard the name Paul Begala all the time. As you'll hear from Paul, his career took off after he and James Carville helped to elect Bob Casey as the governor of Pennsylvania in 1986. My mom and dad met on that campaign, and the memories they have from working with Paul, James, and the rest of the Casey clan are memories that they will cherish for the rest of their lives. To this day, they still talk about how much fun it was to work on that campaign, to make history and see the world change for the better in front of their eyes. In this episode, Paul and I discuss the memories and life lessons that he's taken away from the campaign trail over the years, the changes he's seen in the Democratic Party over his career, the profound impact that Newt Gingrich had on American politics, the 2020 election, the role of the media, and Paul's relationship with John F. Kennedy Jr., one of his closest friends, and someone he worked with closely on the staff of the George Magazine. Paul is a good and decent man who radiates positivity. His love for ordinary Americans and his passion for public service provide a ray of hope for the challenges of our time. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I did. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Paul Begala. All right, I'm here with Paul Begala. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. Tom, thanks for having me on. You know, I feel like you are in many ways the proximate cause for my entire life because uh, <laughs> my parents met on the Casey campaign. You helped win that election. And so, you know, I'm sure they're very happy <laughs> after uh, election day. And so for my entire life, I feel like I've owed this debt of gratitude to Paul Begala. <laughs> Well, I was uh, just like a kid speechwriter on that. Your father and mother were just phenomenal and terrific successes. And then they fell in love. And how <laughs> great is that? Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. And they are about the best people in the whole wide world. To this day, they still talk about how much fun they had on that campaign. And, you know, just growing up with the idea of working on a campaign, you know, is I feel like a luxury that not many kids have. Uh, and so I've always been very, very grateful for that. Um, but there's a lot to talk about in the world today, but before we dive into it, can you just tell us a little about what, about what you're doing now and, uh, you know, your, your professional background over your, your career? Sure. I am now working with CNN where I'm a political uh, contributor analyzing uh, politics. I'm still a Democrat, obviously. (laughs) I don't pretend to be a journalist who has to be objective and fair. I still try to be. In other words, but I'm not reporting the news. I'm analyzing it. Uh, I, I don't work for any politicians anymore. And I think that gives me the freedom to call them as I see them. Uh, again, I'll, I'm still a Democrat. I always will be. Uh, it won't shock you that I'm not a great fan of Donald Trump's. <laughs> but but I, so I, I do that. I do uh, uh, analyze politics for CNN. I teach at Georgetown in the McCourt School of Public Policy, which I have loved. It's just terrific. Um, and, you know, I write books and do a little bit of, uh, of, of, of other writing on the side. Mostly, uh, I publish a lot at CNN.com. 
What was your inspiration to get into politics, Paul? Was it always something that as a kid you were growing up with an interest in? I mean, I know you were in student government in college, but where does that motivation come from? Yeah, my, my parents were good voters, uh, but not overly political besides that. I mean, they always voted. They knew what was going on in the world and they're great patriots, but they were not politically active. Uh, it was, I'm not one of these kids. It was, you know, parents taking them to civil rights rallies. I mean, my parents were busy raising five kids and being good parents. Uh, so I don't know where it came from. I, I was I got into student government in high school. Then I was active in college. And I just I had the sense, as you said, like, meeting your parents in that campaign for Governor Casey, it's fun. It's fun. And it's consequential. And I have to say, probably in that order at that stage <laughs> of my life, like it was really cool. It was fun. I, I my, my wife, we met when we were 19 and we were both involved in campus politics and student government at the University of Texas. And uh, it's been 38 years and we're still together. So there's, I, I, I think for you, for other people starting out, this is a very difficult time. It's a really hard time. It's a, a difficult time to serve. We're more polarized. We're more divided. Now we have these twin crises of the coronavirus uh, pandemic and the economic collapse. So I feel for you, but I hope soon we get back to a time where campaign and politics can be fun as well as consequential, because that's what led me to it. And it's a good segue to what I wanted to ask you about first in your career, which is exactly working for, for Governor Casey. Um, you know, at the time, uh, he was not a uh, very successful politician, was a great public servant, but had lost a couple of races. I think, was it the three-time loss from Holy Cross? Was that the that's rap what, on him? That's what the uh, WASP establishment in Pennsylvania used to call him. <laughs> well, he overcame that with force. But um, can you tell us about how you got involved with that campaign and what it meant for the rest of your career and just the difference it made in your life? Well, that was the first campaign that uh, the... Uh, firm of Carvel and Begala ever won. It's not the first we ever worked in. But Carvel and I had become friends and partners and co-workers uh, in the 1983-84 cycle. So we lost in 84. And we did another uh, uh, race in 85. We lost. And frankly, nobody would hire us. And Mr. Casey, uh, as you say, had run three times before. Uh, people were uh, derisive and dismissive of him. Um, and I remember Carvel going to meet with him. And he said, in his inimitable Carvel fashion, he said, we like the last two ugly kids the night before the prom, Mr. Casey. <laughs> like, and nobody wants to hire me and nobody wants to work for you. And it was a case of opposites attracting. I mean, Governor Casey was taciturn and stern. Uh, I, I was scared of him, I have to say. I respected him, I revered him. I wouldn't even just say respect, I revered him. He was an intimidating figure. Uh, James, you know, is is um, perhaps not as bound by the uh, strictures of uh, of manners and taste. And, <laughs> and, uh, so they were total opposites, but they just fell in love. Um, and and so we were just blessed. We really were. Um, you know, Casey knew who he was, and he knew what he was doing, and he taught me so much. Uh, I, I do. I revere him. And one of the many things he taught me was when people would ask him about running and losing three times. And it's a complicated story. Many of the times he lost for governor, he was kind of cheated by the Democratic establishment where they ran another guy also named Bob Casey to split his vote. But he wasn't bitter about it. And he would, he would wear his failure as a badge of honor. And he would go around the state of Pennsylvania. There was a recession on then in 86. And he would say, oh, I've been knocked on the canvas. And let me tell you something. The view from the canvas is highly educational. 
I've learned more from getting knocked on my butt than I have from the times I've succeeded in life. And you've been knocked down too, and they're counting you out too. And so if you've ever been knocked down, if you've ever been counted out, I'm your guy. And oh my God, I loved that. And so did the people of Pennsylvania. And it just taught me a lot that um, there's no shame in failing. There's no shame in losing. There is shame in giving in to uh, uh, the condemnation of people who are frankly lesser uh, uh, lights than a Bob Casey and wanted to look down their noses at him. No, it's the courage to continue that counts. Uh, what made Governor Casey so unique? You know, I, I feel like he's almost a, a lost brand of a member of the Democratic Party. You know, I, I'm not sure we'll see another like him. You know, what, what made Governor Casey kind of a, um, you know, a different breed of a Democratic politician? Well, he fit into a tradition of the, of the Democratic Party, which when he was coming up was the dominant tradition, which was the lunch bucket Democrats. Yeah, he was a lawyer and, and a quite a good one. But he always remembered that his father, Alphonsus, had been a mule tender in the anthracite mines up in Scranton. And in fact, when he won, Carvel and I, uh, we were traveling around Pennsylvania and we found uh, a, a sculpture made out of anthracite coal of a mule being pulled, led, you know, out of a mine, hauling a, a cartload of coal. And of course, we got it for him. We put a plaque on there and we said that to Bob Casey, the son of a mule tender who became governor because he never gave up and never gave in. But he came from that that coalition. We used to call it the black and blue coalition, African-Americans and blue collar whites. And that was the Democratic Party. And he embodied them. It's always strong for civil rights, always strong for unions and the rights of working people. And, you know, as the Democratic Party has grown with uh, the intelligentsia, with the professional class, that's been terrific. But I do think we've lost our connection. Many, many of Democrats have lost their connection to that blue collar working class base. In fact, when Casey was governor, he commissioned a statue, a large statue, right in front of the governor's mansion in Harrisburg. And it was a heroic image of, uh, it was, I think it was an iron worker and like straining against a major iron bar. And I remember him saying, I was like, wow, governor, that's impressive. And right there in front of the door. And he said, I want every son of a bitch who lives in this house to wake up every morning and see that he works for the working people of Pennsylvania. Now, I have to say one of his successors moved it, which tells you a lot. Of, and it was a Democrat who did that. It tells you a lot about the uh, Democratic Party losing touch with its working class roots. But he was he was very much in that tradition. Uh, and it was a it was a common tradition. He was a JFK, RFK Democrat. And he was also um, very much pro-life, wasn't he? Yeah, he was more pro-life than the Pope. And, <laughs> and, literally, he was. I mean, he was as, as uh, uh, committed on that issue as he could be. And. You know, that came to define him, I think, by choice uh, toward the end of his career. He really, really focused on that uh, beyond other issues. But the, 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 what he he was like a Cardinal Bernadine, where he believed in the seamless garment of life. So, yes, of course, he was pro-life and would have had if he had the, the power have outlawed almost all abortions. And he was very pro neonatal care, child care. Uh, WIC funding, the Women, Infant, and Children funding program, which helps feed young families. Uh, all the things that many people who call themselves pro-life today are, as uh, Congressman Barney Frank used to say, they, they believe that life begins at conception and ends at birth. Casey did not. He saw it as a, a, a seamless garment. Now, there was a flaw in that, in that he supported the death penalty. 
but he was governor for eight years and he never, never carried one out. And I, I believe that's because in his heart, he carried that pro-life view even to the condemned, uh, much less uh, everybody else. Now, it's one of the things my parents talk about to this day was just the deep sense of conviction that he had. Um, you know, wasn't an opportunist, was just a man of really deep uh, belief and morals. Um, and that came through, I think, everywhere he went. Uh, but so you have the Casey campaign, you edge out Bill Scranton. What was it, 79,000 votes? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which was a gift, not just the people of Pennsylvania who got a governor, by the way, he was reelected by the largest margin in history. They loved Casey, loved him, and he was a great governor. Uh, but it also, I think, liberated Bill Scranton from a career he was probably ill suited for. I, I always suspected. Uh, well, we even made an ad that said this. They gave him the job because of his father's name. He was a Scranton and a child of privilege and uh, not a bad person at all. But he didn't have the same uh, uh, drive of conviction, I think, that Casey had. In other words, I think he was sort of born to it and felt some sense of noblesse oblige, which is honorable. But he wasn't driven in the same way as Casey. And, he, he, and I think um, it was probably a good thing uh, to, for him to move to a different line of work. And so you come off that victory, um, and then you go on a real string. I mean, you oversaw gubernatorial victories for Wallace Wilkinson in Kentucky in 87, Zell Miller in Georgia in 90, and then you come back to PA, and you lead the upset victory for Harris Walford, um, who is another underdog. Uh, is an underdog your favorite type of candidate, or is that more just uh, <laughs> the opportunity? Well, uh, for me at that point, it was, well, it was born in tragedy. Uh, Senator Hines was beloved and uh, killed in a plane crash. It was just absolutely tragic. And of course, Governor Casey, like everyone, was heartbroken. Uh, Casey went through a long, laborious process of trying to pick the senator to a point and finally wound up with Harris, who was his secretary of labor and industry. He had I'd met Harris through Governor Casey in the campaign in 1986, where Casey finally got the nomination, which the party establishment had denied him in his three previous attempts. And he knew that the Democrats in Pennsylvania had a rich tradition of corruption. It's one of the reasons they kept cheating him out of it because he was incorruptible. So when he finally took over, he wanted a Pennsylvania Democratic Party chair who was absolutely incorruptible. And so of course he turned to Harris Wofford. Harris had worked for Dr. Martin Luther King, had written very early on about how the civil rights movement should embrace Gandhian tactics of nonviolence. He traveled to India and studied uh, Gandhi's philosophy, came home and wrote articles. The first white guy to go to Howard University Law School. Just an amazing, amazing guy. Wound up working for President Kennedy and helped stand up the Peace Corps with Sarge Shriver and became quite close to, to Governor Casey, who, as I say, made him his Secretary of Labor and Industry. So that's how that happened. And, and uh, uh, well, Wofford was just, I always felt like what the founding fathers would have wanted in a senator. And I think that's what attracted Casey. They were culturally as far apart as they could be. Harris was uh, uh, a professor, literally. He had taught philosophy. He had uh, been the president of Bryn Mawr College. He had been the president of, uh, of Old uh, Stony Brook or Old Westbury uh, at New York State University. Um, it, Casey was much less uh, professorial. But they bonded on their sense of conviction, and uh, Wofford got the nod, was appointed to Senate, and promptly we did a poll, and he was 47 points behind because the Republicans were going to run Dick Thornburg, who was a two-term governor before Casey, popular guy, was then the attorney general of George Bush Sr., who was at 91%. 
he'd prosecuted the, the, the first Gulf War against Saddam in 100 hours and blown the enemy out of Kuwait and then stopped instead of trying to occupy a foreign country like his son did. So we were 47 points behind. We didn't have a chance in the world. Uh, but we had Harris and his remarkable vision. We had Bob Casey, uh, who was weighing in and helping us to get uh, get started and raise money. What was that vision? What was Harris's uh, outlook for that race that made it so successful? Well, as Secretary of Labor and Industry, running in a recession, you would think we would run on jobs. And sure enough, when we did a poll, it came back. The number one issue was jobs in the economy by far. Nothing else was close. But our pollster was a guy named Mike Donilon, who today is the chief strategist for Joe Biden. It's a very good sign for Joe. Mike is a genius. And Mike added into that poll healthcare. And it came very, very low until he and Harris started talking about it. And Harris said, you know, the truth is, if I could fix one thing about our economy to create jobs in Pennsylvania, it would be healthcare. And Mike said, go on. And Harris said, well, so many of the strikes we see, so many of the plant closings we see, so many of the problems we see are because healthcare costs are so high. And if we had a system of national healthcare, I'm telling you, it would do a lot to cure this recession. And so uh, Mike, being a smart guy, listened to his client, put that in the poll, framed it as a, a, a healthcare message that way, and it just exploded. And we saw from the beginning, from the second poll we ever did, that if we focused on a clear message of healthcare for working and poor Pennsylvanians, that we could defeat even the beloved uh, former two-term governor. And that's how that happened. It was all Harris's vision, I have to say. He, he was not literal. I think this is an important thing for politicians like you to understand, <laughs> which is a poll is not there to tell you what your deeply held beliefs are. It is there to tell you where the voters' heads are at. And then you draw a Venn diagram. Where, where are my convictions? Where are the voters' interests? Where's my opponent? And you obviously want the union set of you plus voters minus opponent. And Thornburg was a terrific guy, but he was ideologically and passionately opposed to a system of national health care. So we had him outside of our union set, and we had the people of Pennsylvania and Harris for it. And in that sense, it's, it's kind of easy. But it, it, I, Harris would never have just literally looked at the poll and said, well, the top issue is jobs. And he had credibility on jobs. So I'm just going to talk about jobs. He was much broader a thinker than that. No, it's an amazing story. And his background, like you mentioned, makes the story even that much more powerful uh, with his track record of civil rights work and um, just being a lifelong public servant. Uh, and so you, you worked, worked there for Harris Walford, and then you're connected to Bill Clinton. Um, how did that connection originate? And then when you stepped into the role of chief strategist, can you tell me, like, do you meet with Bill Clinton and then formulate a philosophy for how to run the campaign? Or is it more fluid than that? You know, what's like the kind of hierarchy of uh, steps you need to take when you first jump on a campaign to that scale? Well, Clinton knew what he wanted to do from the jump. He just needed people to help execute. Um, we fell into his orbit through Zell Miller, who was governor of Georgia. We'd worked for Miller in his campaign in 1990. Miller uh, and Clinton, being progressive Southern governors, were friends. So Miller's elected in 90, takes office in 91. 
in 91, Clinton decides he's going to run for president the next year. He travels around and he comes to Atlanta. He stays at the governor's mansion with Zell. And they were total opposites. Zell was a Marine, very squared away and, you know, went to bed at like nine o'clock. Clinton stayed up all night and Zell, to indulge his friends, stayed up all night with him. And they talked about the country and what we needed and about the campaign. And Clinton said, I'm going to run. And Zell says, I'm going to endorse you and I'm going to move up my primary so that the South has a role earlier in the process. And frankly, you should probably be able to win in Georgia. And then almost as an aside, Zell said, and you ought to hire these boys in my campaign. Clinton says, who? He says, James Carville, Paul Begala. Clinton said, never heard of him. And Zell says, well, maybe that's a good thing huh. because we've lost five out of the last six presidential campaigns <laughs> with the old crowd. Maybe you should try these new guys. And uh, and so so he did. Clinton called us and we just fell in love. Um, I, I, we walked out of the first meeting with him. And uh, I said, uh, this guy is too good to be true. And um, it's the, the reason we felt that way was he had a fully formed sense of what he wanted to do as president and about how he wanted to win as a candidate. What Carvel then said to me, though, is that so many of these politicians are empty vessels that you have to fill up with content. So Clinton has got too much content. Our job here is going to be to try to whittle it down and focus him down because he's going to be all over the map. Uh, and I think we were both right. I think it was almost too good to be true. I've never in my life encountered the combination of heart and head that Bill Clinton has. It's just astonishing. So when, when you, and we were a bit um, uh, um, popular then too, because this was a few months before Harris won. Then once he won, we became the flavor of the month. And uh, we talked to several of the other candidates, Tom Harkin, who I just love. God, I wanted to work for Harkin. He's a prairie populist Midwestern senator from Iowa, just a great guy, wrote the Americans with Disabilities Act, changed America. Uh, Carvel was really in love with Bob Kerry. Carvel's a Marine. Kerry is a Medal of Honor recipient, Navy SEAL, lost his leg in Vietnam. He's a by God American hero and just terrific. Uh, but even against competition like that, uh, Clinton just blew them away. I mean, it was we were just so thrilled to be able to work for somebody with that kind of talent. How did you see the party change over the eight years of the Clinton administration, if at all? Um, what was the development like? You know, Clinton, it almost seems kind of like um, an Obama era, really monumental shift in the country, uh, one of hope. And there is a deep optimism. Um, what were the kind of ebbs and flows of that eight years? And where do you see the party uh, even looking back now, was it how is it different than when you first entered working with Bill Clinton in 92? Well, we came in with Clinton having lost the Democrats, having lost in 68, 72, 80, 84, 88, five out of six. And we won with Carter in 76, uh, mostly, I think, because of Watergate. Right. So had it not been for the criminal conduct of Nixon, we probably would have lost six in a row. And Clinton had this radical notion that it was maybe our fault, not the voters. And he wanted to modernize and moderate the Democratic Party to get back in touch with those kind of Casey Democrats, those uh, middle class Democrats. It's if you ever have time, it's worth looking up Clinton's convention speech in 92. When he accepted the nomination, he said explicitly, I accept this nomination on behalf of all those people who pay the taxes, do the work, raise the children, teach class, patrol the streets, run the run the shops. And he said, that's the American middle class. It is from your ranks that I come. He said, you have been the forgotten middle class for too long. You will be forgotten no more. It was an explicit middle class appeal. And by middle class, he meant 
both economics and values, that there was a sense that people were playing by the rules and getting shafted. And I think that's very much the case today. Um, but that, that, so he was in the tradition, I think, of, of, I think, the best of the Democratic Party. But he did have real resistance within the party. And the press always wants to say it was left-right. And it was some of that. But I always felt like it was forward back. I, I felt like there were people who were so wedded to um, perhaps uh, you know the New Deal, which was a great program, but uh, the sort of alphabet soup bureaucracy that it spawned, both in the New Deal and the Great Society, that we became programmatic. Instead of talking about families, you know, we talked about statistics. Instead of talking about housing, we talked about Section Eight. Um, and so Clinton was much more. Um, consciously middle class. He, he, and he told the country that. I mean, our ads said that. This is not your father's Democratic Party, we said in our ads. Um, it was very important to him to bring the party back to the center. Uh, and look, it worked. It not only worked, it spawned a third wave movement all around the world. So you had new progressive center left leaders emerge in, in Britain, in Italy, in uh, Germany, in Chile, uh, all around the world. And so it was, it was quite an exciting time. And, and parties need to do this from time to time. They need to go up in the attic and you know clear the dust off everything and throw out the stuff that doesn't apply anymore, get new stuff. And uh, that's what Clinton did for us intellectually and politically. Is that he saved the Democratic Party. Uh, when Bill Clinton ran for president, California, was the most reliably Republican big state in America. It had gone Republican nine out of the previous 10 presidential elections. And so Carvel and I are looking at that map. Nixon famously called California the big enchilada. As a Californian, he knew that. And you look now, from, the, from Bill Clinton's election to today, we haven't lost California once. And a lot of that's a changing nature of California politics. But a whole lot of it is that Clinton changed the Democratic Party to give them an appeal in the kind of uh, rising American electorate. There's a point where um, I was rereading a book, Why Nations Fail, um, where you know an economist and a political scientist look at history and they try to determine what makes democracy crumble and when political discourse can begin to embark on this kind of abyss toward a sense of decline. And they identify Newt Gingrich as one of those focal points in American history where uh, there's this massive shift in the way politics are undertaken at the national level um, and, you know, co-branding certain local politicians with national figures, um, kind of pursuing this uh, sense of rigid partisanship by design um, and just changing the tenor of politics. Uh, and they say that's something that's really manifested itself over the past two decades. Um, does that conform with your experience, was that a, a radical shift in the way politics was conducted? Very much so. Uh, on a personal level, I, I try hard to get along with Newt. I've worked with him on various things, like at CNN. He was on CNN for a while. But I don't think history will be very kind to Newt. I, I do believe he ushered in not just a set of, not a, a, a ethic of partisanship, which is fine, but an ethic of negative partisanship and hyper-partisanship. Newt defined himself and his followers defined themselves much more by what they were against than what they were for. Um, it, it was not that he came in with a whole bunch of new ideas. He came in with a whole bunch of new epithets and 
labels and everybody who was disagreed with him was corrupt. It wasn't, I'm right, you're wrong. It wasn't, I have a better idea. It was, I'm American and I'm patriotic and you're evil. Uh, it, it, the very moderate Bill Clinton, he called a countercultural McGovernick, whatever that means. Uh, George McGovern was a war hero. He was a great American, but he was always, always, always focusing on the negative and on how to divide and how to tell his team that you define yourself by what you're against. Now, we see the apotheosis of that in Donald Trump, right, who's completely driven by the negative. Uh, and there's a place for that in life. There is. Like, I went to University of Texas, so did my wife. All my boys, Tom, are like your age or a little bit younger. They're all college or just out of college. If you ask any of them, what time is it? They will say, Daddy, it's 2.37 and OU sucks. That's how they learn to tell time. Because it's not enough that they love the Texas Longhorns. It's more important that they hate the Oklahoma Sooners. <laughs> so I save my negative partisanship for really important things like college football. Um, Newt has introduced it and that Trump has made it the absolute uh, 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 theology of current Republicans to hate the other side. And, and I, I think that's really different and lamentable. Uh, and, and I think Newt will bear a heavy burden in history. And he's a, he's a historian himself. And I, I don't know how quite he's come to live with himself uh, in that regard. But it's very antithetical to the American idea uh, to hate and divide that way. Yeah, we fight and fight and fight, but then we have to find a way to, to, to heal. You know, when Clinton was sworn in for a second term, he had his hand on the book of the prophet Isaiah. This is after four years of dealing with those guys, two of which Newt was a speaker. He put his hand on the Bible and he had opened to a passage of Isaiah that said, and thou shalt be called healer of the breach. Like he saw that, that this is a country very easy to divide, very difficult to unite. And uh, for all my problems with George W. Bush, he wanted, consciously he ran saying, I want to be a uniter, not a divider, right? Uh, I love Barack Obama. And one of the reasons I love him is he ran and governed consciously trying to heal the country. There are no red states, he said. There are no blue states. There's only the United States. What a difference Trump is from any of them. And he's much more in the Newt uh, uh, model than he is a Bush or a Reagan, because there's just nothing unifying about him. What's the solution? I mean, obviously, this is something that if anyone could figure this out, they'd probably be, you know, on Mount Rushmore. But uh, it seems to me that this has been really worsening and being more amplified over the past two decades. And I'm not so sure we've ever found an actual way to, to fix it. Uh, and my worry is that, you know, Joe Biden has, has said over the past year that he views Trump as an aberration, that this is just a blip in the system. Uh, but Part of me also worries that this is not just a bug, it might be a feature. And there has to be a way to rewind this really dark path we've gone down in terms of the way we treat one another. But we also have to figure out what that is. And so do you have any thoughts on just what we have to do to change the way we view politics today? I do. I think we not only have to defeat Trump, which is the most important thing in the whole wide world, but we also have to defeat Trumpism and discredit it. So that doesn't come back in uh, uh, perhaps even a, a more virulent form or maybe even a slightly more polite form. Um, we have to discredit that whole method of dividing America. And that's hard to do. So as I say, we're very easy to divide. I've been in all 50 states 
And one of the things you learn when you travel this country is we're impossibly large and impossibly diverse, and it is our greatest strength. But just like in a human, your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness. And, and so I, I want to, the way to do it is to beat him, to beat him and disgrace him uh, at, the, at the ballot box to show young Republicans coming up that the way of division is a way of failure. You know, I, I had many problems with Ronald Reagan, never voted for him, but he was not divisive in this way. Like, you know, like, for example, you go back and watch Ray, Reagan's uh, farewell address. It's mostly about immigration and how we should right. welcome immigrants to this country. It's a great speech. Uh, it's a wonderful speech, and it's it's classically American. It's classically Republican. Uh, so I, I want to discredit and disgrace Trumpism by beating him. But the way to beat him is not to be him. You know, I, I, I won't say who, but one of the candidates running uh, called me up, and I came to this candidate's office when they were beginning, and uh, I said, I, I met with almost all of them, and uh, I said, what do you think the, the party wants? What do you think the country needs? And this candidate said, someone who will fight, 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 and just kept punching their fist into the hand, into the other hand. And I love to fight. I tend to be much more futuristic than most. But I don't think that's the zeitgeist. That's a candidate who failed, by the way. I think Biden is on to something. I think the reason he is the Democrats' nominee is not because he had the most money and not, frankly, because he was the best debater, you know, or the most charismatic on the stump. I mean, he didn't draw 20,000 for his announcement speech the way Kamala Harris did. But it's because he was seen as the most unifying figure. And I, I believe when people, politicians, man, they're just like us only more so. You're not really a politician yet, Tom, <laughs> in the bad sense of the word. What I mean is this. Okay, when I was a kid in Fort Bend County, uh, we had the county fair every year. And at the county fair, they had a chicken who could play piano. And they'd take her around all the county fairs in Texas. There's 254 of them. But this chicken, she didn't know Mozart from manure. But if you, if you gave her a corn pellet, she hit a key. You gave her another corn pellet, she hit another key. And that's how politicians are. They respond to stimulus. So if you reward them for dividing, like Trump does, they'll divide. If you reward them for uniting, like Biden is seeking to do, they will shift and start doing that. I'm telling you, they are uh, the greatest uh, adapters and uh, copycats in the world. So that's what we need. We, we really need voters to reject that division and to uh, uh, embrace the kind of unity that, uh, that, that Joe stands for. And I'm telling you, there is a reason Democrats sorted through that remarkable field, crowded and talented, and they chose Joe. And I'm quite sure it's because he appears to be the one who is the most opposite of Trump. He unites where Trump divides. He's empathetic where Trump is narcissistic. He's experienced where Trump is not. He's brilliant where Trump is a dope. Let's face it, he's a very low wattage IQ. He couldn't boil water with that IQ. Um, so Joe, Joe is everything Trump is not. And I think that's, that's a very good way to defeat him and then to show the rest of the country even if you're running for, you know, county commissioner in Lackawanna County, oh wait, I gotta, I gotta do more like Biden and less like Trump. This is a, an interesting question to ask you, Paul, because my dad and I talk about this all the time about how the entire country during Watergate got their information at six o'clock on a weeknight for Walter Cronkite. You know, 
despite political differences, the country was more or less operating on the same common nucleus of fact. But today, I don't think we can say the same. You, you can live comfortably in an echo chamber if you want to, and you might not even know that you're in it. Uh, and so, we, you know, this message of hope is one I find deeply uplifting. I think it's desperately needed. But with the way our media is constructed, I worry also that some people won't hear it. And if they do, they'll be made to believe that it's disingenuous. Um, how, you know, now that you're, you're in the media and you've seen the media evolve, even with social media in particular, um, what challenge does that bring to the way we frame our political discourse? Enormous. Uh, Tom, I think you and your dad uh, have really put your finger on the most difficult part of this. I, I have far more hope uh, in politicians adapting and changing than I do in the media landscape. Because, you know, politicians at the end of the day have to get a mass audience. And, you know, Fox can make a billion dollar profit on two or three million people out of 327. So the market segmentation that technology has brought has an awful lot of good, but an awful lot of bad. So you're right, we can silo ourselves in terms of information. Uh, and and we have, and uh, uh, I have friends who work at Fox, you know, again, I try not to be uh, a hater, but there's no doubt that Fox has been very damaging to our democracy. Um, not because they're conservative, but because they are often, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this, they're just not truthful. And so we can't operate from a, set, a, a common set of facts. Um, this is a huge problem. And, and yet, uh, it, we, you know, we elected Barack Obama twice with Fox as, a, as the dominant cable news channel. You know, we elected Bill Clinton twice with Rush Limbaugh as a massive power uh, in uh, talk radio. So it can be done. It's just really, uh, it's a terrific challenge. Uh, I would not, I'm not where some liberals are who wants to go back to the fairness doctrine and require equal time by government. I, I don't want to do that. I, I'm much more for the for free speech and free market, and I wouldn't compel anybody to broadcast anything. But it, it means that all of us have to work hard at developing a broad and diverse media palette. And at the end of the day, there, it is still only two or three million people watching Fox. And there's 62 million who voted for Trump. So you can't, it, it is it's a terrible problem and I don't underestimate it. But I, I, I believe it's, you can overcome it by, uh, uh, by reaching out, by trying to compete, by some of it in a campaign, by advertising, uh, which you know Fox can't control. Um, and so you speak to those folks, you try to reach them. And, you know, if you were to tell Trump voters who skew much older than Democratic voters that Donald Trump wants to cut their Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and I can show you, it's right in his budget, um, that could move them, that could change them. And so rather than Democrats sort of feeding into their narrative by insulting Trump voters, uh, I think some, we won't get them all. We won't even get most of them. All we have to do is lose them by less. Margins matter in politics. They matter enormously. So, you know, look at Luzerne County next next door to uh, where your dad grew up. It's Wilkes-Barre. Bill Clinton, like every Democrat, won that in a landslide. Uh, Obama won it. Of course, he had Joe Biden from that region. 
uh, but Obama only won by about 2,600. So it was close, uncomfortably close. You're watching the decline of the Democrats with the white working class, but still, Luzerne is gonna go Democratic for Obama, both elections. Then switch to Hillary, who has roots there. Her mom and dad are buried in Lackawanna County next door. She spent her summers up there. Her dad was from Scranton and she campaigned hard there. She lost Luzerne County by 26,000 votes, a landslide. Holy smokes, there's something going on. So we've got to, to get to them. And, and if you don't have to, you don't even have to win anymore, but you just have to lose by less than 26,000. If she'd lost by 15,000, she would have won Pennsylvania and, and you know, perhaps won the presidency, depending on Michigan and Wisconsin. And your insight is one that I've talked about a lot on the campaign trail, Paul. You know, when people say to me, how do you talk to someone who voted for Trump? It's like, you do just that, you talk to them. You know, why has the Democratic Party let you down? What can we do better? Uh, you know, how can, what can make us the ones that give you better health care and better wages and a better life? And if you frame it that way and take the burden on yourself, you can actually have a meaningful conversation. Um, but, you know, looking back at Hillary, and obviously hindsight's always 2020, but, um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the deplorables comment. Uh, and I'd imagine it's, it's nearly impossible to be in the moment and to be the subject of ridicule and public pressure, probably at a scale that's never been seen in human history, um, focused on one single person. Uh, but she did kind of um, fall susceptible to the more negative impulses that were happening around her. Do you have any kind of, now that we've been a few years after the election and we've seen the country progress since the, you know, 2016, do you look back at Hillary with, with a difference now than you were maybe in the immediate aftermath of what had happened? Well, uh, yes, it's a short answer, but she, I don't want to discount what you referred to. She is the probably the most vilified woman in modern American history. Uh, the fact that she's the, the first woman nominee of a party when this country has been around for two and a half centuries tells you something about the endemic sexism. And despite that, and despite the voter purges, particularly in Wisconsin, but uh, also somewhat in Michigan, and despite the Russian intervention, despite all of that, she still wins. She still is the president. If Jim Comey, 11 days before the election, the head of the FBI, violating all ethics, publicly announces that he's reopening a criminal investigation into her, which, by the way, there's a criminal investigation into Trump's campaign at the same time. He never reveals that. It never leaks. He calls a press conference in July and attacks Hillary. She, she overcomes that, but 11 days before the election. So she was cheated. There's just no two ways about it. And we've never had... a. a Russian interference like that. We've never had the FBI director put his thumb on the scales like that. So she was robbed and she was cheated. Now, that said, I still think we have to learn. I'm quite sure I wasn't there, but I'm quite sure I know what she was trying to get at, which is just simple analysis, which is you can't get everybody. Some people are just not open to your message, but you don't say they're irredeemable. And I, I'm quite sure she feels terrible about that. And I don't think she meant it that way. I think she meant they were unobtainable because they're hardcore Republicans. Um, it, and I think that, that when you say something like that, it, it lands on such fertile field. You know, it was Senator Obama talking about Pennsylvania who said, you know, they cling to their Bibles and their guns because they're bitter. Well, no, no, sir. As somebody who is a faithful Catholic and owns 25 guns, I can tell you, I, I don't cling to them because I'm bitter. I'm a very happy person. Um, but 
it, it, it's those kinds of comments that feed this sense of abandonment and aggrievement. And uh, I think you're right. Uh, how do you talk to Trump voters? Well, I, I did about uh, 15 hours ago. You know, my brother voted for Trump. I love my brother. He's like the greatest person in the world. I'm supposed to hate him? Oh, well, he's a racist. Well, I don't know. I've known him since the day he was born. He's never said or done anything racially prejudiced in his entire life. But, you know, maybe he's changed since I moved away from home. So let's ask his wife. She's a Venezuelan immigrant <laughs> or his children who are bilingual Latinos. If daddy is a racist, you know, it's just crazy and it's insulting. And I look, I think he's totally wrong about politics, but it is just awful to paint everybody who voted for Trump with the uh, with that vicious broad brush that some do. You know, it's the fallacy of composition. You studied philosophy. Right. All giraffes are animals, but not all animals are giraffes. Well, all the racists are for Trump, but not all Trump supporters are racist. It's a, it's a compositional fallacy, and most Trump voters are really, really good people, like my little brother. So it's it's that sort of attitude. I always tell, I bet you your parents will tell you this. Uh, again, my wife and I, we met when we were 19, so we've been together for 38 years. We've been married for 30. If I could have won some campaigns earlier in my life, I probably would have married her sooner. But I always tell the boys, the key to a long relationship is three little words. And it's not, I love you. And I do. I love my wife. And I tell her every day. That's not going to sustain you over 30 years. It's, I hear you. And Tom, when you said you just open up a conversation, you listen, you ask them, how can I help? What, when you look at this opioid crisis, you look at 46,000 Americans a year dying of opioids, and it seems like nobody cares. It should be the Democrats who care. Those are our people. So it's just that you just begin by talking, by listening. You're not going to agree with everything. I'm never going to share my little brother's views about immigration or guns. I love guns, but I'm also for gun safety laws. But we, we at least can have a conversation. And I think that's the key is, is I hear you. And again, uh, you have some of the most modestly gifted people in the Senate, like Lindsey Graham just a hollow man. Even Lindsey Graham will tell you, quote, God never made a better person than Joe Biden. So that's saying something. And people give him static about that, but I think it's his greatest gift. No, I think so too. And, um, you know, I was rereading the book Game Change and uh, about the primary between Obama and Hillary and the David Axelrod factors are in there. And one of them is that usually what the country is looking for uh, is the opposite of who's in office in many ways. Um, and so George Bush, a great recession, two wars, uh, an, an economy that was in shambles, inequality, and boom, here comes Barack Obama, hope, something new, refreshing. And I think Joe Biden is the antidote that we need right now for Trump. Um, I kind of want to just, in the last couple of minutes here, Paul, there's a, a part of your, your life story that I find really interesting because I wonder if it was ahead of its time, uh, which was, the George magazine that you worked on with John F. Kennedy Jr. Was that, um, was it ahead of its time? Was it uh, a folly? Or uh, how do you view um, that relationship and your work on that magazine? And can you just tell me or tell us a little bit about what that was and what the vision for that magazine was? Yeah, thank you for raising that. Um, John was a remarkable guy and George was 
extension of him. You know, when he died, George died. Uh, and so in that sense, it was ahead of its time. It could not survive without John. And John believed, um, and would say this all the time, that uh, politics is the only game for grown-ups. Uh, and that he, he always said, you know, I've had a front seat, a front row seat to the greatest show in the world, and I want everyone else to see it the way I do. And he loved politics and he loved politicians and he loved their flaws and their foibles and their faults. He loved their humanity. And for a guy, you know, who never really knew his dad and whose dad's name and his name is etched on buildings and airports and highways and roads all around the world, it, it was really remarkable how he was drawn to the human element of politics, not those deathless words etched in marble, but the, the guys and gals who are surviving on cheeseburgers and staying in roadway inns. And he just loved all of that. And I loved him. I, I really did. I was very blessed. You know, he asked me to participate. And I was one of the founding contributing editors. And he had a sense he wanted to, he was, he, he knew who he was. And he was the coolest, richest, handsomest guy in the world. And he wanted to use that power to popularize politics, to make it cool, to make it fun, to draw more people in. And, you know, it's just like in high school. If the most popular kid in school joins the chess club, you know what? Chess becomes cool, you know? And if she joins student council, student council becomes cool. And John knew that. And he understood that. He came to visit me when I was living in Austin. And uh, I, was, uh, I was at a PR firm. And I didn't tell anyone he was coming. And we were working on the magazine. He was in my office and we're working away. Nobody even saw him, nobody even noticed. But he had to fax something. That was our technology back then in the 90s. He had to fax something back to New York. And I said, oh, the fax machine's in the file room down the hall there. So he goes in the file room. And like all PR firms, probably like your law firm, you had to have a client code to send anything over the fax machine so we could overbill people. <laughs> and uh, I didn't tell him that. And so he's trying to make the fax machine work. And, you know, guy went to Brown. He was a smart guy, but he couldn't work the fax machine because he didn't know that you had to have a code. So he looks up and one of my colleagues, Angela, was in there and he says, excuse me, how do I work this? And she looks up and in Austin, Texas, on the ninth floor of the office building on San Jacinto is John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. And I swear to God, she hyperventilated. We had to rush in. And and yeah, I said, literally? I said, Yes, literally. I mean, she she just couldn't breathe or was breathing so much that she almost fainted. And I said, you know, John, I've been to your office a hundred times and nobody ever hyperventilates for me. <laughs> <laughs> but he understood that power and he was very gracious about it, and very sweet, and but also very knowing and very canny. And he, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't want to speak for him. I think he would have um, celebrated some elements of today's politics, which is uh, you know, this last midterm, we had the highest turnout since women got the right to vote in a midterm election. A, a hundred year history, we had the highest turnout. He would have loved that. He would have loved all these pop-up groups, Indivisible and, you know, the liberal women of Fayette County. And, you know, just he would have loved a lot of what's happening. Of course, I think he would not have liked all of it, to say the least. But um, I, 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 I treasure his memory and I, I, I miss him terribly. And I do try to remind myself uh, that, 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 that the thing he hated the most, I believe, was cynicism, uh, that he thought that that was laziness, that it was not sophistication, 
that it was laziness, that if you look deeply enough, you could find something fascinating and fresh and original, even in the most phony looking politician. It's a powerful uh, view of the world. That's what we're missing right now. Did he, um, I've read that he, in a way, struggled with the duality of who he was, you know, the recognition of what his name and image carried and also the power that came with it. Uh, do you have any insights on just how unique the life of John F. Kennedy Jr. was? Yeah, you know, I, I, I had this experience. I walked down Broadway with him many times. And people, this is New York, people would be walking along and they'd see him and they'd kind of pop and then they'd walk past and pop. It was amazing thing to watch. It was like popcorn. It's like, oh, but they never say anything because they're New Yorkers and they're cool and they're, you know, there's lots of celebrities around. Um, but he, so he had to be aware of that. And when I would tease him about it, he would say, I know it's an odd life, but it's the only life I've ever known. And uh, I thought he carried that with, with real grace. Um, he, I did not know his mother. I, I came into his life after his mother passed and I, I terribly regret that because she sounds like a remarkable woman. Uh, and he had no real memories of his dad. The one thing he honestly remembered, he said, I know this. I remember my dad hiding candy in his desk and I would crawl around in there. And there's famous pictures of him crawling around in that desk. Um, and so he, that's about all that he honestly remembered about his dad, but he was raised with that burden and that legacy. Um, but he was very, I think one of the reasons he went into media was he was very determined to, to make his own way. I think had he not been taken, he would have run for office. Uh, he was, he thought about it when, when, um, Bill Bradley retired, his senator, senator from New Jersey, his uncle Teddy called him and said, John, you should run. And John called me and said, what do you think? And we were just launching the magazine. It was not the right time in his life. And he was falling in love. It was just not the right time, but I didn't say any of that. I said, Hey, John, you might win. And then where will you be? It's like, Oh my God, I don't think I'm ready to be a senator from New Jersey. And, uh, you know, he kind of laughed, but I think over time he was a New Yorker. I think he had to run for office in New York. Uh, and I, I, he was not uh, as ideological as a lot of politicians, which I like. Um, but he understood the, the mantle that he carried, but he didn't want to spend his entire life only, you know, only as the legacy, only following in his father's footsteps. Um, when we launched the magazine, he has this, had this dear friend, Gary Ginsburg, and Ginsburg actually introduced uh, John to me. Ginsburg went on to be a top executive at Fox and then at CNN, uh, uh, Time Warner rather. And he's just absolutely brilliant guy. And Gary had gone to college with John and they were very close. And Gary said to him, we were doing the practice for the press conference to launch the magazine. And Gary said, I know it's a lifestyle magazine. Do you think you'll do investigative pieces? And John said, ah, you know, I won't rule it out. It's not really what I'm getting into this business for, but I wouldn't rule it out. And out of nowhere, he hits him with a two by four. And he says, so are you going to do an investigation into who killed your father? Oh my God, my heart stopped. And John said, you know, Gins, I've thought about this a lot and I've realized I could spend my entire life trying to chase down who did that. And it wouldn't change the most important and unalterable fact. And that is, I don't have a dad. So no. And that was so wise and so heartbreaking. Um, 
but it, it was, it, I thought that encapsulated a lot of how he honored his family and its legacy. And he was so close to Teddy and, and his other cousins, but he wanted to make sure he made his own way and he wasn't just somebody's junior. It's a powerful story. I regret that the country never got to see John F. Kennedy Jr. You know, become a major part of it and what that would have meant for politics in this country. Um, there's a lot of counterfactuals we can run like Al Gore winning or Hillary Clinton winning or, uh, you know, Robert Kennedy not being shot. But John F. Kennedy Jr. dying is one of the more tragic ones. Uh, and your insights on that are um, timeless. Uh, and it's a good segue to my last question I want to ask you, Paul. Um, who are your political role models? If you had to put a Mount Rushmore together of people that either through study or experience, you p kind of hold up as aspirational or the kind of the very best of what public service should be in the United States, who would you put on that list? Well, in my, obviously in my real, in my career, my real life, it, it, it would be Governor Casey, Senator Wofford, Governor Miller, President Clinton. Um, those four guys, they did so much for me. They really lifted me up and taught me so much. Uh, and and uh, I was so blessed to learn from them and to, to uh, have mentors like that. President Clinton is still my mentor. I, I, I finished a book uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was the second person I sent it to. And that guy, he's pretty busy. He read the whole book, called me up, and for an hour and a half went through the whole thing. Well, this is good, but this is bad, and you should work on that. And I mean, I, he was my book editor. <laughs> I mean, who gets that? It's so, I'm so blessed. But I would say outside of those who I've, like, immediately, uh, in 1998, I'm working at the White House, and Esquire magazine did a, a whole edition about heroes. That's where the Tom Hanks movie came from. Tom mm. Janot wrote about Mr. Rogers in the Heroes edition. And Tom Janot is such a gifted writer and it's a great movie, but the article's even better. Um, and so I was a very small part of that. They asked me, they asked probably a dozen or more people. And I said without hesitation, oh, my hero is John Lewis and let me tell you why. And I've gotten to know him over the years and he's one of the very, very few who I can't call by his first name. I revere him that much. I, I've, I've I brought my children to meet him. Um, he he came to my son's high school. Uh, he is the embodiment of everything that I believe politics should be about, that America is about, that a Christianity is about, that a uh, that what he and Dr. King call a beloved community should be. And I just admire everything about him. One of the things is he's. I think he's a saint. I think he's a living saint. And but he is not Francis of Assisi. He's John the Baptist. <laughs> you know, the, he, he and he says this all the time. You got to make trouble, Paul. You got to make good trouble. You got to make trouble. He he is is the most um a, a powerful proponent of nonviolence and the most successful over time that I've ever seen. And anyway, I just love the guy. And he is somebody who I have so long admired. I never worked for him. So I, he didn't like personally mentor me in the way that that uh, Casey and, and Clinton and Wofford and Miller did. But he's one of the very few, I don't have one of those vanity walls, but I got a couple of pictures. I do have Governor Casey on my wall and I do have Mr. Lewis. Uh, when I wrote that piece, they did a photograph, some very you know talented photographer did a portrait of the two of us. And he signed that and he said to Paul, my brother, and to have someone like that, I mean, I, I, he, I think everybody 
should follow him, watch him. They should lift him up in prayer now. He's fighting a cancer. If you have the time, I know you're busy, but if your listeners have the time, there's a book he wrote called Walking with the Wind. And it's about his whole life. He grew up in Troy, Alabama, where his father was a sharecropper. And their shack was so weak that when the wind blew, they had to walk from one side to the other to hold it down. They'd have to walk with the wind because the, their house wasn't even attached to the ground. And for that man to come from that humble a background and have changed the world so fundamentally. Anyway, he, I'm sorry to go on so long, Tom, but he is a truly great man. No, you have me lost in thought as well. I'm looking at a picture of him on my desk right now. Uh, and I've seen you quote this line, his favorite African proverb. You know what I'm going to say? Yes. What is it? No, go ahead, go ahead. When you pray? Move your feet. Man, it's as good as it gets, doesn't it? It's just so great. I just cannot imagine. I've seen the films. I've talked to him about it. I've read the books. He walked into those billy clubs. And he got down on his knees and prayed. And it's just, a, they split his head open. It's just a miracle I, I, that he lived. I was with him once. He, he, he takes every year, he, he took a group on a civil rights pilgrimage. And I was honored to go with him once. And we were in Birmingham. And they have a civil rights museum there. And we're going past and there's all these pictures and he stops and it's a picture of this racist man, his face just contorted. And he stops and goes, hey, I know that guy, he punched me. Huh. <laughs> and it was just like, it all came back, but it came back with um, strength and even love, not that blankety blank. It's, it's just, I think he's the most amazing person I know. I'm with you on that one. And like you said, it's probably the best time to go back and read his book while he's struggling with his health right now, because we owe it to him to value just how remarkable of a person he is. Um, but Paul, it's, it's a real treat and an honor for me to spend an hour with you um, and look up to you. And I think your insights on what's happening in the country today are ones that uh, not many people can share as someone who's helped put two Democrats in, in the White House. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Well, Tom, you're terrific. Best of luck on the campaign. I'm pulling for you. And uh, a country needs you and uh, a couple of thousand more just like you. <laughs> Thanks, Paul.